left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. It's always the toughest, usually when we onboard a park, because we're trying to clean up whatever mess that we're inheriting, getting the processes switched over, getting the lots infilled. So the heaviest amount of work, obviously, is up front. Once you get it stabilized and you get the homes sold off to the tenants, it becomes easier and easier. Since you are here listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're investing with a group of people. Whether you're investing with family or friends or like-minded people in the left field investors community, Group investing is a strategy that can get you into more deals, help you diversify, and go beyond what you can achieve by yourself. Before TribeVest came along, it was difficult to overcome all the hurdles associated with group investing. It was basically a strategy reserved for the wealthy. Not anymore. Now, TribeVest helps your group with everything from incorporation, collaboration, banking, and equity management tools all in a single place. So you can focus on building wealth with the people you know, like, and trust. I'm using TribeVest for all five, now six, of my investor tribes. It's a game changer. Check them out at TribeVest.com. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the left field community. This is Dan Hanford from PassiveInvesting.com, and you're listening to Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. I'm very pleased today to have Ryan Murdoch with us. He is the co-founder and strategic advisor to Open Door Capital, a company focused on mobile home parks. He's also been on the Bigger Pockets podcast three times, and he used to uh, be on the marketing team for Bigger Pockets. He has his own portfolio of rental properties. He's also a passive investor, and he lives in Maui, Hawaii. Ryan, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. Hey, good afternoon, Jim. Thanks for having me. It's been a while since I've done a podcast, so I had to blow the blow the dust off my equipment here this morning. So bear with me. No, I'm I'm glad we got it all figured out. We really appreciate you being on. And the way we like to start is if you could just talk about your real estate journey. I know you have an interesting story. I've heard you on the Bigger Pockets podcast. So if you could just share with our listeners how you got to where you are and what happened on the journey. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Real quick, in a nutshell, I was in electronics manufacturing for the better part of 10 years. Just decided at that point I didn't want to work a W 2 job until I was retirement age, 65, 70, whatever it is now. Ended up uh, finding real estate, finding some books and, and a couple of podcasts, and, and just started acquiring a, a small portfolio of small multifamily properties in, in Bangor, Maine. So duplexes, triplexes, a couple 10 units. Just kind of scratched and clawed to put that portfolio together over the years. Also around the same time, 2008, I got my real estate agent license. So I was a broker for 10 or 12 years. And also at the same time, I started a property management company. So I managed uh, a lot of the same type of stuff, small multifamily, some slightly larger 40, 50 unit complexes and a bunch of mobile home parks uh, under management. Did that for 10 years or so. It was around 2017 when I got partnered up with Brandon Turner from Bigger Pockets. He was looking to invest in a mobile home park. And I found one close to me that uh, fit his criteria. So we, we ended up partnering on that 
park. It was a small park, but we got some pretty attractive seller financing on it. It was definitely a value add property. We spent two and a half, almost three years adding value, doing a lot of infill, making a lot of improvements. There was a ton of management inefficiencies and that type of thing that we're able to clean up and, and sold that park for a pretty tidy profit after only, a, it was about two and a half years. So from there, we really got motivated to say, hey, let's, let's get serious about this. I mean, we both had a, a ton of real estate experience, but they said, let's, let's really get serious about this mobile home park thing. I ended up moving out to Maui here, which was a great change from the cold Arctic climate of Maine. Brandon and I were able to amass a really talented, motivated team of real estate professionals. And some of them were industry veterans with, with a lot more experience or in relevant areas. And, and a lot of our team now is younger, super motivated, highly energetic, a lot of times very well educated, but don't necessarily come from the real estate space, but they're, they're quick learners and they bring a lot of the financial technical experience that we were lacking in, in some areas. So in the past three years, we've amassed, I think we're at about 300 million in assets under management. We've got about 3,000 mobile home park lots and another thousand or so apartment units. And we're, we're in the middle of our fifth, it's our fifth mobile home park fund right now. So that's a very long story condensed into a very few sentences, but that's the gist of it. No, that was, that was great. I, I'd like to go back to when you first got into real estate, because it's always interesting. How did you figure out, okay, real estate's the thing because you weren't happy in your job? And also, did you jump 100% to full-time right there? Or did you do some real estate while you were still working? I had to keep working. So I was living in, in Southeast Asia. Like I said, I was in electronics manufacturing, living in Southeast Asia, decided I wanted to make a change. So I came back to Maine and I took a series of jobs, W-2 jobs that I didn't really want, but I, I still needed, obviously, to put food on the table and pay the bills and try to get bank loans. But certainly by that point, that part of my head was completely checked out. And all I was passionate about was like, okay, I need to do whatever I can to get out of this W-2 thing. So like, you know, the old sneaking out in the parking lot, trying to wheel and deal real estate stuff on the phone during your job, nights and weekends, and, and just running around hustling. And, and it took me probably another two, almost three years before I was able to say goodbye to the W-2 job. And through that was certainly not all passive income from my real estate, but being a real estate agent and running a property management company and still a million hours a week, but it was all a means to an end. It all aligned towards my what I thought was my final goal of amassing enough real estate to then hand it over to somebody else to manage and I, I could live on it passively. So it was a long sometimes torturous 10 or 12 years of down in the trenches of trying to just scratch and claw when, when I didn't have much money and it was just all hustle and running property management single-handedly with a few hundred units is just around the clock, like no escape existence. But at least at that point, it all aligned to my goal, unlike my W-2 jobs, which didn't really align to anything except another 40 years of doing that same thing. So it was certainly a sacrifice in time and mental well-being, but it, it got me to the place that, that I now am I'm happy to be. Yeah, that, that's great. And so now I'd like to pivot a little bit, but you, you said you had mobile home parks before you started the open door capital with Brandon. How did you get into mobile home? Because most people that get into real estate, they start with single family or like you said, small multis. How did you get into the multi or mobile home park stuff? It was more out of necessity from when I was managing real estate, it was not that I was very excited about mobile home parks and all growing up, they were kind of the laughing stock. And even my adult life, they were still kind of like, oh, that's just a, yeah, wh whatever, that's just crap. But as a necessity of building out my property management company, which I needed to do because I was still trying to buy properties, I was taking on a lot of management that I wasn't necessarily would have been interested in as an investor or as a buyer, but it was a, it was a management account. They're a good management account. So I was taking them on. 
And slowly but surely, as I was working on my, you know, my, my eyes opened. It's like, hey, wait a minute. This isn't the laughing stock we all thought it was. This is, a, this is a pretty solid vehicle of investment. And there's a lot of ways to add value and do really well with these things. So it just kind of a, a change. I think a lot of people that are in the mobile home park space kind of came along with the same thing where it used to be just, you know, nobody really took it seriously. Then certainly, over, especially over the past five, six, seven years, it's it's really become a super competitive market and people are seeing the value and they're seeing the ways that you can add value and they're legit and respected uh, asset class now. So you said it, it was a good investment and, and there's ways to add value. And I agree. But can you talk about what makes mobile homes a good investment compared to other asset classes that you know are pretty popular, like multifamily or self-storage? And then also talk a little bit about what are the ways you add value in a mobile home park? Sure. I think my favorite way to add value in a mobile home park, which differs from other asset classes, is the potential to infill vacant lots. So with an apartment, and not that I'm knocking apartments because they're great as well, but if if you buy an apartment complex, you're limited typically to however many units there are, and you can go in and spend whatever, five, 10, 15 grand, 20 grand a unit, and then increase the rents by a few hundred bucks a month. That's great. But where mobile home parks differ is our target acquisition right now for a mobile home park is something that's typically 60 to 70% occupied. So let's say we buy a hundred lot mobile home park and 60 of those lots are occupied. So we're buying that park on its current value based on, on its current NOI. But what we do, and even if like that acquisition doesn't cash flow tremendous amounts in its present state, we generally buy them so they'll cash flow and at least carry themselves at that occupancy rate. But what we do is we've got a team dedicated strictly for infill. That's all they do is they're they're looking, they're sourcing used homes, they're sourcing new homes, they're moving homes, they're getting them set up, they're preparing the pads. So in that hundred lot park where there's 60 occupied lots, we've got 40 pads now that we will prepare, make sure the the utilities are up to code and, and functional and safe, and we'll source homes to put on those lots and then sell those homes off to tenant buyers. So if they're used homes, we'll renovate them and make sure that they're turnkey and safe. Or if they're new homes, obviously that's a lot easier to sell off to a tenant buyer. So when a tenant buys that home, they are responsible for all the repairs and maintenance and upkeep and utilities for that home. So we're the involvement for, you know, maintenance calls and you're not plunging toilets, you're not, you know, you're not fixing anything in there because the tenant owns the home. But what we've done is is take that what was a vacant lot when we acquired the park is now generating lot rent, which is can vary from it's 300, 400, 500, even $600 a lot, depending on the market. And almost all of that lot rent goes straight to the bottom line because there's very little overhead. Obviously, we're responsible for the infrastructure within the park and there's management and there is some overhead, but the majority of that lot rent now goes straight to the bottom line. So if we can do that across 30 or 40% of the park, that adds a significant amount of value, both from a cash flow standpoint and just an overall valuation of, of the asset. So we really like that. We're, we're finding a lot of times that the parks that are already, you know, say 95 or 100% occupied, we're not competitive because there isn't enough value add potential there. But those parks that, you know, have a little more hair on them, they're in a great market, the demographics and the and the underwriting pencils out, but it's, it's going to take two or three or four years to stabilize those parks. That's really seems to be our sweet spot where we're competitive and, and where we do well after closing to add that value as quickly as possible. Well, that makes sense that if you have these parks that are mostly vacant, like you said, it's like adding extra units to a multifamily building, right? That doesn't cost much to do. But it surprises me that you can find parks that have that much vacancy. Why would a park have 40 spots that are just unfilled? And how common is that? 
Yeah, it's very common and it almost always boils down to mismanagement, whether it's intentional, where if you've got sort of a mom and part, a mom and pop style owner, maybe they're getting, maybe they're getting older. A lot of times there's no debt or, or anything. There's no debt on the park. So the mom and pop are, are happy just cash flowing in a very inefficient park. Sometimes it's just, it's institutional ownership and they just can't find and don't have good third party management. So the park goes down the drain. It's almost always boils down to management inefficiencies. So when, you know, when we can step in and, and put a lot of focus and we do all of our own in-house uh, property management, we've got an outstanding team that, that deals with that. We're really able to breathe new life in, into a lot of these parks. The other thing I'll add too on the infill component is let's say we spend, depends on the park, but let's say we, we have a, a park where we can input a, uh, or infill a $25,000 home. It, it costs us 25000 to acquire the home, bring it in, get it set up, renovate it, and make it turnkey ready for a tenant buyer. Obviously, we'd love to recover all of our money, even if it's break even, and if we can sell that home for twenty five grand. But even if we take a loss on it, let's say we that we take that twenty five thousand dollar home and we sell it for twenty thousand or even fifteen thousand dollars, which is unusual. But a lot of times we're willing to to take that short term loss because again, we've activated that lot rent, which just adds potentially, depending on the park, fifty, sixty, eighty thousand dollars in value to the park for what's essentially a five thousand dollar quote unquote loss on that specific home which is not something you can get in the apartment space in that sort of scenario. Now, when they somebody buys one of those homes from you, is there financing available? I mean, they're not putting down cash for that. Where do, where do they find the financing? And do you help them with that? Or do they have to go outside and find financing? Yeah, it depends. There's a lot of different mechanisms to sell them. Obviously, a cash sale is the quickest and cleanest and easiest. And we do have a fair number of cash sales. There's also third-party financing companies that specialize specifically in mobile home financing. So the tenant will have to put down a cash down payment and they can finance the balance. We also have some other creative strategies where we may do a, a lease option or a rent to own type contract with the tenant buyer where they've got a contract where they have a, a lease for their for the lot rent and then they have a separate contract where they're they're purchasing the home. Okay. And is it hard to find new or used homes? Because I've heard that there's some of the um, mobile home companies that I've been talking to that they struggle to find houses to do the infill. So is that region dependent or is that is that something you struggle with? Yeah, it can be. And a lot of that just boils down to relationships that we've built with both manufacturers, wholesalers, other suppliers. There's various auctions. There's there's all kinds of sources of homes. And we were when we were smaller and had fewer parks to infill, we leaned a lot more on and it was as simple as, and this still works if you have a, a small park somewhere that just get on the search Craigslist or get on the, the Facebook marketplace group for your area and they would pop up there and what, we'd have to rush a guy out to meet somebody in a parking lot with cash in hand and do the transaction to, to get the title and, and move the home. That's not as scalable. I mean, we still will keep an eye on those things, but that's not as scalable now where we're ordering brand new homes, 40, 50, 60, 80 of them at a time from one manufacturer, and then we've got to get them distributed to our different parks. So a lot of it just comes down to, we've been at this for a few years now. We have some really solid relationships throughout the, the supply chain. But that said, it's still tough. There's a lot of people doing similar, uh, doing things similar to what we're doing. We've got a ton of supply chain issues with everything in the world right now, as everyone knows. So a lot of times, a lead time on a new home order, you may be out 18 or 24 months right now, even if, even if you're ready to buy and you've got cash in hand and, and you want one from the manufacturer. So that's where, again, that relationship we have with some of the manufacturers and the wholesalers allows us to jump a little further to the head of the line. You mentioned doing things at scale, right? Because obviously you're buying a lot of parks with, with a lot of units. How does the property management work? Because even if you have, you know, if you have a, again, I compare everything to multifamily because that's what we do a lot. But 
you know, if you have a 200 unit multifamily, you can afford to have a full time person. But if you have a hundred or 200 spaces in your in your mobile home park, I mean, do you need a full time manager? How do you find that with I assume? I mean, unless you're buying in the same area, which I don't know, I'm, I'm assuming you're all over the place in the market you're in. Yeah, we're all over the place. It certainly is easier if we're acquiring a park near one that we already have and we're already established because a lot of times you can share those resources, whether it's management or, or maintenance or both. But generally, every park that we have has at least one on-site park manager. So they, they live in the park and their responsibilities are, are usually pretty light duty. Again, most of the homes are owned by the tenants, so there isn't the onslaught of, of ongoing maintenance calls and that type of thing that you see with apartments. But obviously, rent collections and, and we've actually automated a lot of the rent collections. A lot of that's now done online or through ACH. But you know, showing vacant units or being the front line, if there is some sort of maintenance issue within the park, there's a leak or there's an issue with snow removal or lawn care, or just you know, boots on the ground, eyes on what's going on. But all of our individual park managers are then overseen by one of our regional property managers. And those are mostly based out of Atlanta. We have a few scattered around the country, but all of our regional property managers will oversee depending five, six, maybe seven parks in our portfolio. And then there's the on-site managers in all those parks. So we've got a pretty good chain of command from the, the park level boots on the ground people to the regional property managers up to you know VP of property management. So there is a chain of command there. And we put a pretty big focus on keeping the communication open, weekly meetings with everybody, video tours. We'll send the regional property managers around to the different parks at, at various intervals to make sure things are going well. And you know, it's always toughest, usually when we onboard a park because we're trying to clean up whatever mess that we're inheriting, getting the processes switched over, getting the lots infilled. So the heaviest amount of work obviously is upfront. Once you get it stabilized and you get the homes sold off to the tenants, it becomes easier and easier. And what markets are you in? Is it just scattered everywhere or do you have favorite markets and places you're targeting? Yeah, it's really scattered. I mean, we have parks in Alaska. We have parks in Florida and and everywhere in between. We prefer kind of the southeastern United States. We tend to avoid states where it's tougher to do business, California, New York, that type of thing. But we'll look at pretty much anything, anywhere. I mean, we're looking for... We want parks that are only on public utilities. We want, we don't want to deal with wells and septics. Although there are some great opportunities there for other operators, we don't want to deal with it. We want parks that are at least 100 lots or larger. And we want to see, at the very least, a stable, uh, obviously better if it's an increasing population of at least 100,000 people within 10 to 15 miles. Larger metro certainly is, is welcomed, but we have these kind of these hard stops on things that weed out what we don't want in a hurry and try to determine what, what's worth a, a deeper dive. Hey, left fielders, this is Julian McClurkin. When I'm not on the court with the Harlem Globetrotters, I'm the chief storyteller for TribeVest. Now, you might be thinking, why would TribeVest hire a Globetrotter? <laughs> well, through my travels around the world, I've met so many amazing people and heard their incredible stories. And it's no different at TribeVest. My job is to share the stories of people investing together as a group, as a tribe. TribeVest allows groups to pool their capital, set up their LLCs and bank accounts, help with operating agreements, funding rounds, and so much more. Whether you're investing with other dads from your kid's preschool class or getting into real estate syndications with people around the country like LFI infielder Brian Pawnell, TribeVest helps them all make it happen. If you want to hear more about stories about TribeVest's customers, just check out TribeVest's YouTube channel. And if you're already ready to start investing as a group, head on over to TribeVest.com today. Do you try to find the mobile home parks that have a lot of vacancy? Is that 
part of your target market because you're more competitive or is that just gravy if you find it? Yeah, it's a delicate balance because we're, like I said, we're more competitive generally on the ones that are 60% occupied, 70% occupied, but anything a lot less than that becomes too heavy of a lift. It's real difficult to get financing on stuff that is, you know, if you have a park that's 30 or 40% occupied or even less, it's a real challenge to get financing that, that you can live with. And it's also a real heavy lift. So because we're raising money and we have investor capital, we have promoted returns that we're trying to hit. So a lot of those deals that we see come through the pipeline, say it's a a park that's 20% occupied and it's going to be a real heavy lift. It's not going to generate really any cash flow for three, four, five years. It's super capital intensive. Might be a great overall deal, but it's not a deal that that checks the boxes that we need to satisfy investors and and to raise money on. So it's that balance of like finding something that, that generates enough cash to satisfy investors something that isn't too heavy of a lift that is viable and attainable for us, yet still enough meat on the bone to add that value and then not be so turnkey that we're not going to be competitive where we're dealing with you know massive institutions and REITs and, and those kind of buyers. So it's a real sweet spot. you know. And we figure there's only, I hear different numbers, but 40 to 44,000 mobile home parks in the entire US. And when you weed out the ones that don't meet our criteria, it whittles that down to I don't know, probably a couple thousand parks that we would even buy if we had the opportunity to and, and how many of those come up for, for sale every year. So it's another thing that comes down to just relationship building with brokers and wholesalers and just trying if something comes up that checks our boxes, we at least want to know about it and have a shot at it, whether we're a successful buyer or not, but we at least want to be in the loop and, and have a chance of taking it down. Right. And you mentioned financing. How does the financing work for the when you're buying a mobile home park Again, comparing it to multifamily, is it similar that you have agency debt or you have bridge debt or, or how, how does it work? Yeah, very similar. I mean, there's different players, but yeah, the, the more stabilized the park, the more occupied it is. You know, if you get something that's that's 80% occupied or higher and, and, and you know, a nice, well-managed, well-manicured, well-laid-out newer park, then certainly agency debt is an option. You get the great non-recourse agency debt terms, but a lot of the stuff that we're targeting, that, that stuff that needs the infill, it's more localized banks, maybe small regional banks where the terms aren't quite as good, maybe some bridge debt involved, seller financing to some degree if we can get it. And that's, you know, that's all in our underwriting. We're like, hey, we're gonna, we have to take these slightly less favorable terms for the first three years until we get the infill and meet the requirements of agency debt. And then we know we're going to refi into something with much more attractive terms. So yeah, very similar to apartment space. Once you have a stabilized asset then the financing is available. I didn't know if mobile homes had a had a bad reputation in banking or something, but you're saying it's pretty much if you have it stabilized and it's in a good market, you're going to be able to get debt. Yeah, now that's come a long way too because you used to not be able to get financing from anybody because there was everybody's laughing at it. And now, you know, again over the past 6 to 8 years, it's it's really stepped up. There are some specific things to mobile home parks that are different. For example, a lot of them don't like to give any credit to the valuation if you so if you have park-owned homes those are personal property. They're not bolted to the ground. So the bank will, will a lot of times discount the rental income from those. Even if it's good money and it's real money, they're going to disqualify that when they're looking at the debt service coverage ratio or even from the appraised value, they're going to back out the income generated from the park on homes. And they're going to want to take into account only the income from the lot rent. So that's why you see a lot of this push towards getting out of the park on home business and, and getting those homes transferred into tenant ownership. In addition to just not having to deal with the maintenance or, or any of the headaches that go along with it, a lot of it is financing driven where the banks will discount. If you have a park that, you know, it's a hundred, again, go back to the hundred lot park and, and 80 of those homes 
are park owned rentals, same as you know a rental situation that you'd have in in an apartment building. And the bank comes in and, and discounts the valuation of the income based on the on the home rental. You might have a huge disparity there because the seller may be asking whatever eight million, and he's and he's got a point, and that's a that's a fair valuation in his head. But the bank comes through, they discount all the park on home rentals, and they're like, yeah, this thing's worth three and a half million. So you've got a seller that wants eight million, and and the bank that says, yeah, we're going to value this at three and a half, and there's a huge spread. So especially outfits like us, we're raising money. You know, we can't just cover that difference in in cash. It just doesn't doesn't make sense. So. That's why you see a lot of seller financing as well in the, in the mobile home park space is to bridge that gap between what the seller wants and what the bank values it at, what the financing is uh, available for. And when you look at parks, I assume from what I've learned is some have you know a lot of tenant-owned parks and some have a lot of park-owned homes. Is that something you look at when you're underwriting the deal? And if you end up with a bunch of park-owned homes, do you try to transition those over time? I mean, is your goal to get all tenant-owned homes, and and you, are you aggressive at that, or do you kind of just do it as it comes? Yeah, the goal is always to, no matter how many park-owned homes there are, we we try to transition them all to tenant-owned homes. We try to be delicate with that, so we're not going to go in. I've I've heard of nightmare stories where operators go in and on day one they're evicting park-owned home tenants, so they're forcing them to take ownership of it. We don't do that. We try to have some level of humanity. <laughs> with our tenant base, we'll usually roll out different options where, hey, if you want to lower your rental costs, but you're going to take on this home either for free or for a payment plan or, or whatever it is, we'll, we'll roll out different different options for them. If they don't want to take those, I don't think we've ever forced anybody out of a park-owned home just on that scenario alone, just, just for that. We'll let them ride out their tenancy. And when they move out, we will then take that home, renovate it, and we'll opt not to re-rent it at that point. We'll only sell it. So that may take, I mean, it depends. Sometimes it's it's two, three, four, five years or, or longer to get them all transitioned over. So when we're doing our underwriting, we try to make our best conservative guess just based on the overall makeup of that park and how many park on homes and what we've been able to do at other parks. So we can usually dial it in pretty close as to what we're going to be able to transition every year. And if there's too many park on homes, like I mentioned, sometimes that just kills a deal. Like it just doesn't work. We're not going to be able to get high enough LTV. We're not going to be able to get the right financing to make the deal work for us. Might be a great deal for somebody else, but it's not a deal for us. Yeah. And you keep saying it, but it's so important to find deals that are within your wheelhouse, right? The kind of deals that you want. And I think there seems like there would be a lot of pressure when there's only, you said, maybe a couple thousand parks that even meet your metrics. seems like there would be a lot of pressure to fudge it or go outside of your target. But it sounds like you guys do a pretty good job of just sticking with what your target is. Yeah. I mean, fudging anything, that's a short-term gratification because that's eventually going to come back and bite you. And once that bites you and you bite your investors, good luck raising money again. So yeah, as tempting as it can be to try to massage the numbers and, and justify that, yeah, we can make this work. We have to be real careful. With that said, we raise money in a fund. So if we have a fund where we've got three to five parks, maybe more, it gives us a little more leeway in as opposed to like a, a single asset syndication where all your eggs in that one basket, that that specific asset has to meet your criteria, has to generate prep and, and all the things that you've promoted to your investors in a fund, we can kind of mix and match a little bit. So we may put a park in the fund that is a little more stabilized, maybe in a better metro, uh, longer term or better chance of longer term appreciation because it's, you know, it's five miles outside of Atlanta or it's, you know, it's in a real hot market, but not as much value add. So lower return, but less, less risk. 
but we'll pair that maybe with something that's got a little more hair on it where it's there's a little more vacancy and a little higher risk but we know that man the you know the upside to this thing is huge where either one of those parks on their own wouldn't really fit our profile but the blended mix of those parks allows us to to buy them both and when there's four or five different ones and we can kind of mix and match and fit ones that are that complement one another it gives us the ability to really diversify within the fund and, you know, over different geographic ranges, over different risk profiles of these parks. And, you know, we, we can't go crazy on either end of the spectrum, but it allows us to a little more leeway to take down some deals that we wouldn't otherwise be able to take on their own. Right. And I think when you when you have a well-known target market or target property, target mobile home park, that makes it easier for investors, too, because they know most of the deals that come through from you guys are going to be very similar. And so they don't have to start from scratch at trying to evaluate it. And so I think that that's super helpful to a passive investor like me. So then the next question is, if someone's going to invest in mobile homes as a passive investor, can you share a few metrics that you think we should look at when analyzing a mobile home deal? And again, you know, we compare everything, or I do at least, to something that at Leftfield Investors, we have a pretty good model for analyzing multifamily properties. But we don't have all of the metrics for what should we look at for mobile homes. Can you share a few metrics that you would have a passive investor evaluate? Sure. It, I mean, it's it's really tough to underwrite a mobile home park. In my opinion, it's, it's a lot tougher to to actually underwrite a mobile home park deal versus an apartment deal. Just there's, there's so many different variables and it really comes down to that level of infill. So how many vacant lots? How many do you think that market will support every year? Are you buying new homes? Will the market only support used homes? Are you going to sell this for cash? Are you going to owner find? Like there's so many different variables and not that there aren't different variables with apartments as well. But if you're trying to get into the nuts and bolts of underwriting a mobile home park, you're probably just going to end up spinning your wheel. So I, I think with mobile home park, passive investing, like you would with any sponsor, is it just comes down to the trust of the team that you're investing your money with. I mean, I invest, obviously, I'm heavy, heavily invested in open door capital, but I invest passively in other people's deals as well. And do I read through every word of the PPM and, and the executive summary? Yeah, I'll usually skim through it. But what it really comes down to is, hey, I, I know the guys are doing this. I know they've got a great track record. I know they've acquired. I know they've exited. I don't know of any you know horrendous blemishes on their track record or capital calls or deals gone bad. And if there was a deal gone bad, there better be a damn good excuse for it. But it really comes down to the trust in the team. And if you don't trust the team, then don't give me your money. I mean, I think that goes for, for any passive investment. So yeah, I mean, ask questions if you have them. Read through the documentation if you're that kind of person. But the biggest thing, get personal referrals and trust who you're who you're investing with. That's great advice, right? And we talk about that all the time. And you you brought it up. You know, how do you vet a sponsor? And you answered some of that. But how do you get to the point where you trust somebody, right? So you're meeting them for the first time. You're calling them up. Hey, I'm interested in your deals. What kind of questions or, or how do you get to the point where all right, you trust them now? You're going to wire them a hundred grand. Yeah, I would think I would just ask for a track record. Like if I was going in just completely blind to anything, any asset class and I was going to invest, I'd want to see their track record. If they were right out of the gate and this was their first deal, yeah, man, I don't, you know, I don't think I want to be a guinea pig for that. But if you can show me successful track record and provide references or you can get you can get references, that for me says more than than anything else. So it's really the the track record. And we had struggled with that early on, honestly, uh, with Open Door Capital. And we're still a new company. We've only been in our current form for three years. So we don't have a 15 or 20 year history. What we do have are people on our team who have been around. I've certainly been around a long time. Brian Murray is one of our partners and you know he's got thousands of units and, and a decade plus of experience and LPs and GPs. So 
individually, we have we have a ton of long-term experience, but it was a challenge, honestly, at first to get people to take us seriously because they no one had heard of us. We, had, we didn't have that stellar track record. There's nothing you can do at that point except just forge ahead. And it did pose some hurdles for us. And I get it. Like, I absolutely get hesitation and, and some things. But now we've been able to exit some properties and provide some stellar returns. And we're, we're building that track, track record as Open Door Capital in our current form. But for me, that's everything I want to know. Like, even the, the passive investments I'm in now, they're all with people that I know personally, that I have either, either that I'm very good friends with or that I've seen at conferences and had dinners with and, you know, that I know outside of their investment projects that I know that they are good people. They And I know a lot of other people that respect them and speak highly of them. And that that to me is everything. So I've got a, a couple of those guys that honestly, when they say they've got a good deal and they tell me it's a good deal at this point, the level of trust is there. And I will look at the documentation, but I don't need to. Like, I'm going to give you my money. I know you're going to do better with it at your thing than, than I would. So here you go. But it's tough if you're going in cold, especially if they, if they, don't, if they don't have a track record. I completely agree. And and I've kind of, you know, when I was first getting into passive investing, I was doing all kinds of cold calling and talking to new sponsors. And and now that I've, you know, become part of a network, I have a community, I've met people. Now I've kind of changed where I'm only going to invest with a sponsor if they're referred to me by somebody I already know, like, and trust who's already invested with them. And I think that gives you a lot more confidence because these are such long-term deals, right? These are so illiquid when you're investing in a syndication. And and really, that you said it, the trust of the sponsor really is all you have. Yep, for sure. For sure. And if you're going to go ahead and try to second guess their underwriting, I'll have at it. But if you need to do that, you probably shouldn't be investing with them because you don't trust them in the first place. Right. There's a happy medium. You can look at the deal and analyze some of the things and look at the metrics, but you're right. You got to have trust in the sponsor or or you're not doing it. You said you invest passively. So what kind of asset classes are you, are you investing in? Because I assume you invest also in the mobile home deals with Open Door Capital. So what when you're not doing your own stuff, what asset classes are you into? Sure. Yeah. So I'm a general partner with Open Door Capital. So I have equity in all those deals. I also invest with Open Door Capital as an LP. So I'm on both sides of it. A lot of us do. So Brandon certainly invests, Brian invests in, in Open Door Capital deals. And I think that speaks volumes about our confidence in the deal when we're, we're throwing our own money right in alongside all the LPs. That, that certainly helps. And, and that may be another question you ask when if, when if you're vetting a sponsor is, hey, you guys throwing your own money into this or are you just taking my fees and, and your chunk of equity and running away? But when we're putting in you know hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in our own deals, that gives people a, a lot of confidence that we're headed in the right direction. Outside of that, I try to diversify there a little bit just for all the right reasons. And it's just amusing to me because I like to have my hands on a little bit of everything. So some apartment deals in Phoenix, I do a little bit of hard money lending to guys that I know and trust that I know are starting up. So that's generally a high risk sort of investment, but I, I think it's fun and I'll do it very selectively. And I usually go for a very low LTV and a very high interest rate for somebody that's just starting out. And I'm just trying to kind of give a helping hand. I've got some more investments I do hard money wise with guys that have you know a decade long track record and are, are very well established. So that to me is less risk. I'm invested in a couple of development deals, which, uh, you know, high return, but high risk, especially in this market. And yeah, I think the rest of it's just like class A apartment type stuff in various funds and standalone syndication. So, you know, same as same as everybody else, nothing crazy, but just a, a little bit of everything here and there just to diversify and, and uh, help people out where I can and, and hopefully get, get a good return. And, you know, I think it obviously depends on each person's goals and desires. If you need cash flow right out of the gate, that's obviously different. You probably wouldn't invest in a development deal. But if you, you know, you don't need the cash and, or, or the cash flow and you can hold out for a greater return, then you go with something that's geared more towards that. So it's there, obviously there's no one size fits all, as you know, it really just needs to align with, with what you're trying to do and what your goals are. 
Yeah, you know, it, it took me a while to figure out that maybe a strategy would be a good idea that, you know, because I don't have a W-2, so this is all I do. And I was investing in appreciation or development deals at the beginning. And then I realized, hey, wait, I need cash flow. And there's there's different deals for that. So I think you said it well that you kind of have to have a strategy and make sure that everything everything fits into what you're what you're looking at. This has been awesome. I appreciate all the content you've given us. And the last question I always ask is, what's a great podcast that you like to listen to? I know you're going to say all the bigger pockets ones because you work there. So something maybe other than bigger pockets. So I'll, I'll put those in the notes. Yeah. First of all, I need to update my bio because I no longer work for bigger pockets. I, I, I did for a period of time. And as soon as Open Door Capital got to the point where it was consuming too much of my time, I stepped back from there. So I'm a bigger pockets alumni at this point, but I still uh, very much love that podcast. But, you know, over the past year, I, after being a podcast junkie for so long, I just kind of hit pause on all the real estate podcasts. I was so immersed in Open Door Capital and just our circle of friends and associates. And it's like, and the last thing I want to do when I'm on, like, having my free time is, is listen to a real estate podcast. So I, I kind of let them fizzle out. I've been a uh, Joe Rogan addict for the past year or so getting into that. But I will say there's a bunch of new content out recently that I wasn't even aware of. And uh, it was just researching your show, this show uh, yesterday, which I admittedly wasn't aware of. But I started going through some episodes. and I think I plowed through seven episodes of yours yesterday and they're outstanding. They're, they're great. So you, this podcast is now definitely on my rotation and, and hearing some of your other guests recommend other podcasts that I'm, I'm not even aware of. I'm definitely going to check those out. And you had one episode in particular, it was the q and I think it was back in November. You had a guy just asking about all the basic terms. That was phenomenal. And I, I've already sent that to a bunch of people. I sent that to a bunch of people on the Open Door Capital team today, just saying, here's some industry terms that everybody kind of throws around and not a lot of people have a great understanding of. So especially for our newer, maybe even our VAs or our newer employees that are coming from a different industry, like that's a great podcast, man. You did such a good job just just like simply and, and smartly explaining all those terms in a real easy to digest format. So awesome, man. I'm, I'm, I'm psyched to have found this this show. Wow. Well, thank you. That I really appreciate that. That's It's always nice to, to get that feedback. If listeners want to get in touch with you or, or with Open Door Capital, what's the best way to do that? Probably our website's the easiest easiest way to find me. It's odcfund.com or you can email me, Ryan, R-Y-A-N at odcfund.com. And I'm on Facebook and Instagram and all the other social media stuff. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. This was great. You know, we don't talk a whole lot about mobile home parks, so it, it's awesome to get some great knowledge from it. We really appreciate it. And uh, we'll catch up with you uh, soon, hopefully. All right, Jim. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. This episode is brought to you by MAG Capital Partners, a leading investment firm specializing in single tenant industrial real estate with triple net leases. MAG invests in properties with established tenants in manufacturing, cold storage, and distribution. These income investments are designed for strong, tax-advantaged cash flow from day one and have historically generated above-market returns. With approximately $500 million of real estate acquisitions, MAG Capital Partners has extensive experience and a history of profitable exits. To learn more about MAG Capital Partners, visit www.magcp.com. I really enjoyed that conversation with Ryan. I wish I could have done it in person since he's out in Maui, but uh, maybe we'll work that out for the next time. Some of the things that really struck me, because I, I don't know that much about mobile home parks, but it was interesting. You know, the value add component is the infill, which means they have vacant pads and they want to fill them with, with new houses. And that's how they really drive net income, which obviously uh, then increases the value of the property. Where with multifamily, you can't 
it's not like you have vacant space you can build more units certainly not at, at the low cost that it is to just add a couple houses um, on a mobile home park so that was really interesting and i also you know it's pretty common that people are pushing towards tenant owned homes and that's what they prefer because then you're just renting the concrete that they put the house on and you're not dealing with the toilets and the the roaches and all the stuff that uh, multifamily people have to deal with and prefer not to so i think that's a great strategy and speaking of strategy the fact that they stick to their strategy of the metrics they want the type of homes they want they have a very narrow focus and they realize that there's only 40 or 44,000 mobile home parks and of those only about 2,000 fit their criteria and while he did say you know in the fund they may go outside of that just a little bit but they mainly focus on those criteria even though they know there aren't that many parks and, the, and their opportunities won't come up very often so i think that it's hard to do when you're running a business is to stick to what you know and what you want to do and stick to your targets without going outside of that even though you still need to, to buy something right you can't just sit there and not not buy anything so i think that's a great strategy that they have and, and the fact that they're sticking to it gives me some confidence in them I also liked his responses on, you know, how do you evaluate a sponsor? And for him, it's just it's just trust. And that's huge for me as well. And that is a great way to pick a sponsor. He's only investing with people that he really trusts. And you got to build that trust and figure that part out before he'll even move forward. And I think that's great advice for people who are passive investing. So awesome to have Ryan on the show. As I said, next time we interview him, I'm going to try to uh, get a trip to Maui because, wow, that sounds fun. And we'll have a nice interview. So that's it for today. We'll see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.